From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode will explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. This understanding that we deeply bound up in a mutual fate. We depend radically on each other and a a natural world. We are not separate. Kristen Barker is the director and co-founder of One Earth Sangha, a Buddhist response to ecological crises. A native of New Mexico, Barker now lives in Washington, D.C., where she is an active member of the Insight Meditation community there. She holds a master's in environmental management from Duke University and is currently being trained as a community dharma leader through Spirit Rock. Barker called me from her childhood home in Albuquerque to talk about climate change and Buddhist practices in light of the recent election. We spoke about what it means to cultivate a courageous, wise, and compassionate response to climate and social injustice in the face of challenging times ahead. In the summer of 2011, when the Gulf oil spill happened, I felt like that was a critical moment in the same way that the Cuyahoga River catching on fire in the 70s was a pivotal moment in the creation of the EPA, the Clean Mm -hmm. Air Act, the Clean Water Act. It was kind of this confluence. I felt like that was our Cuyahoga River moment, and it didn't really happen. Um, I was very disappointed that Obama, the Obama administration, for you know whatever reasons, didn't seize that as pointing to the need for us to really turn away from dirty energy and to create a new relationship. And I was in a lot of uh, difficulty with that, and so I turned to some of my Buddhist teachers and said, you know, I'm really finding my Buddhist practice is really helping me with this suffering, and I feel like it goes beyond me, and there's sort of a collective opportunity for us to embrace uh, this collective suffering, which is climate change and, and ecological crises in general. And that seemed to resonate, and within a couple of years, I found my co-founder, Lou um, Leonard, from the World Wildlife Fund. He's head of the climate program there. And we created One Earth Sangha. Do you feel like people's reaction to One Earth Sangha, or even just when you first started to connect your Buddhist practice with environmentalism and climate change, did people respond well? Were they confused about that connection? I'm just curious, because I feel like the evolution of of faith-based responses to climate change is such that there weren't very many at first, and now it's a growing movement. Yeah. Oh, you're pointing to something very important in in the Buddhist tradition. We have our own version of heaven and transcendence and, you know, escape, really, from so-called attachments that people might have to climate change suffering. So, you know, the pointing to awakening, enlightenment, nirvana is actually a way to get out of here. And so Mm -hmm. there was some initial response. And and we in the West have our own particular version of that, which is, you know, I'm going to go to my meditation cushion to really disconnect 
there's two ways to approach our cushion. We can, we can transform our suffering or we can actually use it as a way to escape it. And so with our, maybe our meditation retreats, we can go on them to really deepen our understanding of the teachings and cultivate this bodhisattva heart mind, or we can use it as a way to kind of like get out of my stressful life. And so in the early days of one or sangha, we would sometimes in some settings come and want to, to to speak to our spiritual communities about this opportunity for us to bring the enormous resources of this tradition to the suffering and for us all to engage collectively with it and be of use to the world in this way. And yeah, we came across a, a lot of resistance in terms of, you know, what I don't need is more suffering. It's not what I came here for. I came here to actually find a way to in some ways, accommodate the world just as it is and work with myself internally so that I'm happier despite this collective injustice, this collective suffering that's unfolding. And so a lot of our work in the first 12 to 18 months was legitimizing this as an issue in the Dharma that is in the Buddhist teachings. And it took a while, but I think we've been able to, along with others, change that narrative to where it's not seen as outside of practice, but actually integral to practice. That resonates. I feel like engaged Buddhism is so important right now. Self-care on the cushion, that is actually a way to then go forward and take action. At least that's how I've been thinking about it. Um, yeah, you know, Jen, Jen Willis is a great teacher, and I heard her say once when she was talking about engaged Buddhism in her telling of the the Buddha's original kind of awakening and sitting underneath the Bodhi tree and, and his encounter with Mara and, you know, this, this ultimate realization of how suffering can be really unmade. Pain can't go away, but we don't have to suffer. And there's a way, there's a path to freedom and the end of suffering. And so what she says is uh, actually from the moment the Buddha stood up from the Bodhi tree, he was engaged. Buddhism was engaged. But that is actually uh, the, the, the proper understanding because he did get involved in politics and, and yeah. controversial positions. And, you know, that is very, very much in the tradition. So, Thank you. And you touched on this a little bit, but how did you first come to find Buddhism in your life? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought of myself as a as a spiritual person, as somebody who was involved or associated with any faith tradition that just wasn't part of my identity. I was, I have been and continue to be really enamored of science, quantum physics and cosmology and biology, ecology. I mean, I, I, I just have a profound love for understanding the beauty of nature and kind of at a deep level reality. I find it deeply fascinating. So that was, that was kind of enough for me, but then just in the course of life, you know, of course I'm going to have my own uh, personal sufferings and uh, relationship had ended. And I found myself turning towards the teachings of Pema Chodron, which I understand a lot of people come to her work when things fall apart as a, a Dharma gateway. And that was, mm -hmm. that was true for me. So to actually have her frame my personal suffering as not, not a terrible thing, but actually an exciting opportunity to reframe my relationship to my own life and my 
my belief about how things should be and how much suffering that was causing me and to actually embrace just the way things are and bring a, a kind of loving, steady heart to that uh, was just was very exciting and somehow at a deep level made intuitive sense to me. And so from there, I was kind of off and running and falling in love <laughs> with this wisdom <laughs> tradition, which for me is kind of less about what I believe is going to happen in the afterlife and much more about what I do in and how I hold and frame this life. Mm. And I know you mentioned in our previous conversation that you were an activist, you are an activist, and you maybe even ended up arrested at one point. And I'm wondering, was that before or after you found Buddhism? And can you tell me a little bit about that story? Yeah, I did find myself um, getting arrested in April of just this past year as part of Democracy Spring, which was a nonpartisan, unaffiliated with any political campaign to reduce the corrosive influence of money in politics. The short-term goals were uh, overturning Citizen United and restoring the Voting Rights Act. And in that, I think about, I don't know, somewhere 20, uh, I guess it was 12 to 1,400 people were arrested. So it was one of the largest, if not the largest, civil obedience events in recent history. So for me, it was a great chance to connect the issues that are important to me, um, economic, racial, and environmental injustice. And I think it did have a connection to my growing spiritual understanding because in the Buddhist perspective, there are three poisons that undermine our well-being, that kind of generate our suffering individually and collectively. And those are greed, hatred, and delusion. And the lens through my teachers that I've started to understand is that, and maybe most notably Joanna Macy, is that these in Western capitalism have taken on institutionalized form. So, for instance, the enormous institutionalized influence of money in democracy can be understood as a, a kind of institutionalized form of greed. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot that faith and spirituality can bring to the movement. Indeed. You know, you know, I feel like for for very good reason, many of us on, let's say, let's just call it the progressive left, are suspicious of institutionalized faith, institutionalized religion, because it has yeah. been brought about so much harm in the world. Um, I mean, it's not hard to enumerate the suffering caused by institutionalized religion. And yet, in some ways, it's almost like we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and we can forego an enormous sustaining force and set of partnerships that can resource our movements through really intense difficulty. So that ability to hold to, you know, the, the most obvious example, you know, you named Gandhi and there's also Dr. King. The spirituality that was at the core of that understanding, the lens that he brought, the beloved community mm-hmm. that, would, that would make enemies of none, was so clear in its deep morality and its love, its undeniable love, so powerful for people to, to see the contrast and what was violence, what was a threat, what was peaceful. 
Um, so I think, yes, these moments where we just put our own bodies, our own lives in the way of, in harm's way, because we are so convinced of our love, it, it really can send a message that's beyond words that really speaks to the goodness in the, from the Buddhist perspective that believes in the inherent goodness of all people that we all have this vast, beautiful, loving heart mind. And it just gets obscured by really just our confusion about what's going on and, and the way to end our suffering. We just get confused. So if we all have that inherent goodness, then when it's pointed to, it's tapped into even the most, even the most hating person might be awakened through the acts of somebody so dedicated to love. And I'm wondering what your experience has been with people who are alerted to the full impact of climate change. I think at least within my own circle of of friends and family, kind of paralyzed by a sense of grief, a sense of despair over the size of the problem and they basically feel like in order to take action they would need to stop driving their car they would need to stop buying anything made of plastic they would need to do all of make all these lifestyle changes stop eating beef things that would help our planet heal and help stop climate change but those things seem so huge and and they feel like their impact as one person is so small so they all feel paralyzed. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering what your perspective on that is. Oh, yes. I think you're speaking to, to one of the really inescapable understanding that we are in some ways complicit in climate change. And so it's very hard to make other and then to want to conquer the other as, as so many political movements have, have had that sort of clarity of, you know, that's the other out there and that's what we need to overcome. But we can see the ways that we ourselves by our everyday actions contributing to that. And so it does create this kind of paralysis for us. So I think this is where a kind of, uh, for me personally and for the communities that I'm working in to to be able to hold that paradox and to not let us stop, not let that stop us, to say, yes, we are a part of this. Yes, we have this deep humanity. And we, and really, this is the way that our lives are structured. And to completely go off the grid um, is a choice and a choice that many uh, have, have taken and I respect that. But can we also find our way, some of us who choose to, to stay in the quote-unquote mainstream of culture and to try to bring about transformation from within that and to not fall into powerlessness? And I think that this gets to our understanding of what true power is. You know, in in this election that happened just last week, uh, significant power was transferred to a Trump administration, but that is a certain kind of power, not the only kind of power. And from a Buddhist perspective, not the most important kind of power. I think it's an opportunity in some ways for us and that we're being pushed into, if we have the courage of our conviction, to investigate that and ask, yeah, what kind of power do I actually have? And can yeah, buy the things that I need and, 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 and go the places that I need to go. 
and still be dedicated to a system that doesn't cause harm by people going about their everyday lives. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me because I, I went to this was a panel of speakers at the new school in New York last week. And it was sort of, where do we go from here in the aftermath of this election? And what does it mean for the future of social justice and climate change? Bill McKibben was also on the panel and he was saying exactly what you just said, that yes, if you can go off the grid and if you can stop eating beef and turn your lights off all the time and maybe even stop driving your car, drive a hybrid, then those things are great. Do them if you feel like you can do that and that's within your realm of power. But if if that if those things doing those things is paralyzing you then and let it that's okay. This is the world that we live in. It's very hard to go against that grain right now. And that more importantly, you shouldn't let that stop you from joining this movement. The kind of power that that you can have is more of a cultural shift, a zeitgeist kind of power. You know, isn't it interesting isn't it interesting when we look at look out across the right and we we can condemn the right for being very you know, puritanical in their moralistic sensibilities and will we see that on the left on the progressive left we have our own version of puritism and yeah. you were speaking to it just then you know like it's like you know we we have a we place enormous demands and we have this criteria for what it looks like to be down with the movement you know and and we can really tear each other apart in that i don't know about you but my understanding my analysis of these issues is incomplete and i have yet to meet anyone who has a complete understanding who can be completely masterful in their cultural competence and their lived ethics on all these different fronts. So, you know, it's one of those those spiritual cheatings of, you know, let he who cast, who is blameless cast the first stone, you know? Yeah. And so I think we have to, we really have to look at the mind that is in so much pain and it so wants safety. It so wants a better world. But it can, through its own version of Puritanism, really take part and become a part of exactly that which we are trying to unmake. That we, we become very rigid, very unforgiving, very, in some ways, hating um, each other and, and maybe even ourselves in this because we're in in pain and we don't see the way through it. So I think that that more expansive, loving, genuinely kind and understanding heart that sees the systems and the forces of oppression and exploitation and addresses those, but will make enemies of no one. Only we will be fierce about the the systems and the energies and the actions and interrupt them fiercely, but we're not going to make other of anyone, especially each other on the left, um, but even those on the far right, you know, with whom I yeah. so disagree, but I'm not <laughs> going to throw them out of my heart. Yeah. <laughs> That's so important right now, I think, especially in the current state of our country. I feel like we've definitely othered each other on both sides, and that's not going to help anything. (laughs) We definitely have to listen and 
understand and try to reach out. Exactly, exactly. And, it, and, and, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, we would, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh speaks to this so beautifully when he talks about interbeing, that, that this understanding that we deeply bound up in a mutual fate, we depend radically on each other and a, and a natural world. We are not separate. And so any time that we get caught in that natural tendency of the mind to objectify something, to make it, you know, me over here, you over there, tree over there, you know, I'm, I'm okay safe over here, but I can harm another person, another species, and be unaffected. That is delusion that we interrelate so much. And so when we start to embrace our mutual belonging and understand what it is that we actually want to address together collectively, which is is the delusion, is the greed, is the hatred, but not each other, all sorts of possibilities open up. This conversation is happening all across the country right now, and I think that gives me hope. <laughs> um, and then moving into your work, I'm wondering how One Earth Sangha works to move people into action instead of what we were talking about before, this kind of denial or closing down, and what do you feel best helps people deal with the overwhelming impact of what's happening? I guess I would say that the, the Buddhist teaching at its core is radical in that it says that, that freedom and well-being are found not by preventing or avoiding or numbing our suffering, but by courageously turning towards it. That is very unusual thing for a person to do, is <laughs> to turn towards their suffering, um, because the message is that we're not able to handle it. So just as it's quite powerful for us individually, it's really powerful for us collectively to accept that this is happening and to allow ourselves to actually grieve, to feel it's part of accepting what's happening. It's accepting my response to what's happening. That is part of the undeniable landscape of climate change. It's not just scientific reality and, and you know, extreme weather events and drought. It is also within this heart-mind grief and fear and the want to lament. So I think that's part of the, the teaching is for us to work with this externally but also internally. And let that transform us. And I think it's also, I think part of our practice is also to, in a good way, work with attachment. Because, again, we on the left have our own version of, you know, a hyper-attachment to things needing to go a certain way. And, boy, if we didn't learn last week that, you know, things don't go as we want them to, uh, will we let that really disempower us? Or will we say, hey, True North hasn't changed. You know, maybe it just got a lot more bumpy and, you know, there are now mountains to climb where I thought I was going to be walking through a, a, a sweet valley. I still walk in this direction. And I think Wendell Berry said, you know, we don't, we don't have the right to ask whether we're going to succeed or not. The only question we have is what's the right thing to do? In some ways, these catastrophes, these John Kabat-Zinn calls it the whole catastrophe. Can they actually be exactly what we need to wake us up and to have us commit to wisdom and compassion? Because the thing about that, if I, if I can just say one more thing about that, we can authentically wish our adversaries true well-being, wish for them, 
that their needs are met, that they feel valuable, that they deeply know their belonging. Because we know for ourselves and others, if we're truly healthy and contented, we cease to do harm. So we can have this really deep commitment, this authentic wish for the well-being of even even our farthest adversaries, because again, we, we are deeply interrelated. Thank you. And how are you feeling in the aftermath of of the election and with all the news on climate change coming in every day? And how do you manage your own feelings about social justice violations and climate change? I think the thing that, that I'm really centering on right now is a deep understanding of equanimity, an equanimity that holds things in balance and sees joy and suffering and how they come and go. That if I ask myself really specifically, do I know what's going to happen? No, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and to say that the risk with equanimity, if it's misunderstood, is a disconnection and aloofness to suffering. You know, a looking at the planet from outer space, you know, where, ah, oh, the sun's going to supernova anyway, you know, don't get too caught up, you know, and so mm-hmm. it can be really cold to the, to the, the very real suffering, and that is not true equanimity. Um, so for me, it's been about uh, the other, you know, making sure that I stay connected and that, that I am in touch with fear and grief and to allow them to not resist them and want to kind of use equanimity to, to actually disconnect them, what Joanna Macy calls a spiritual bypass. So for me, it's about cultivating that heart and mind that resonates with joy and sorrow and integrates at the same time the, the, the inevitability of gain and loss of life and death. And, and so to have that be what's happening in my heart, to have these things all balancing and informing each other, what are called the four Brahmaparas, the four divine abodes of unconditional friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and to see how how rich that practice is so that I can speak and act from that understanding, from that willingness to that tenderness that's been that's been very helpful for me. Mm. Equanimity is something I'm going to meditate on now. I really think that that's so important at this moment in time. And is there a particular meditation or practice that you have, or maybe it's something that you share with, with the One Earth Sangha that helps you cultivate compassion for the planet and for all the living beings on it? Yeah, so I think it starts for me in in sitting on the cushion. You know, I do first I do some grounding practices to just really be in touch with the sensations of the body, the connection to my cushion, the felt sensation of my connection to the ground, the felt sensation of my hands, my feet, my the the pelvic floor, um, and then to work myself up to the to the spine, and then relax. Uh, all the muscles in my face and you know really just allow an opening an opening of being here a coming here a gathering of attention to this moment and so once that's fairly established then you know the specific practice in the past week around the four Brahmaviharas, the divine abodes the heart practices begins with metta and metta is kind of you know this unconditional 
friendliness, this cultivation of a heart that really is warm and welcoming and wants, wants the end of suffering, wants us not suffering. You often start with yourself or a being that's very easy, like your pet or something like that, just to get the energy of metta in place and to notice that it's here. I don't have to, I don't have to bring it in from the outside. I'm naturally just awakening, enlivening, and influence, watering that part of the garden. And so once that meta energy, that kind regard is established, and there's ways to, there's, you can look up the meta practice, there's ways to really stretch and expand. It's a beautiful practice that really uh, builds a muscle of staying with that want for friendliness and welcomingness and, and kindness. You know, the Dalai Lama says his religion is kindness. I think he's speaking to that energy of metta. And then I allow it to come into contact with suffering. So I'll bring to mind some announcement or piece of news where my heart feels some pain. And I might be in pain for others, things that are already happening or what may be in store for the planet. And to let the energy of meta contact that suffering and resonate with it. You know, Chogam Chimpa Rinpoche calls compassion. This is a compassion practice. The quivering heart. It really is, it's strong and enormously tender and really resonates with that energy of whatever the pain is. So there may be fear, there may be grief, there may be anger. Just to make space for that, to not reject it. And then I might actually purposely move to the other side of the heart's resonance, which is to resonate with joy. So I'll appreciate the beautiful New Mexico landscape. I'll appreciate a piece of kindness that I saw in a restaurant last night. Someone do something enormously kind and let myself be nourished by that to bring that into awareness and let it balance. And say, this too, this is happening too. There is still a lot of goodness in the world. It's not just pain and difficulty right now. So have those two balance each other. And then the ultimate movement is to, is to equanimity, which, which integrates all three of those energies, the energy of metta, the resonance with sorrow, the resonance with joy, and balances them all and integrates the wisdom of all of this is impermanent. There's really not a separate me here. And of course, we're going to get frustrated with things always changing and, you know, the bumpy road to freedom. So it can all be held. I'm definitely going to bring all of this to my own practice. The idea of the quivering heart is an image there that is powerful. <laughs> and my last question for you is, as somebody who's dedicated their entire life to these issues and has made such an impact on the planet, what advice do you have for younger generations who want to take action on whether it be climate change, social justice, or, or the entire movement that I think encompasses all of those things? Right. I think I would say to find a way to resource yourself for the long haul, you know, maybe with a spiritual practice, whatever it might call you, whether it's practices in nature, to to understand the power of Dr. King's lesson to us, that that spiritual core is actually 
the way that we make the most profound change. And so we, we need to really be centered, is to remember who we are and what we're about and to nourish that with a spiritual practice of whatever it is that um, speaks to you. To deepen that, to invest in that, you will be more fierce in your cause if you're intimate with the tenderness that really has been behind your love for your cause all along. All right. Wonderful. And thank you again. This was really special. Well, good. I'm so glad it worked out, Eleanor. I appreciate what you're doing there. It's good to be able to speak with you today. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show, join our mailing list, and sign up for our monthly email newsletter delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating. You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com.